Previously on Brokers, Bagmen, and Moles. So when people make a lot of money, they're thinking there's got to be corruption. There was rumors that mob money was being laundered down there, all of that kind of stuff. I think they were going after my boss, Leo Malamud, and Jack Sander, and trying to get the guys up top, and they never got that far. Archer Daniels Midland, they brought a complaint to the FBI. The first day that these two traders showed up, and I think it was Peter Vogel and another guy, they literally were standing in front of me. And I looked at them, I said, what are you guys doing? They go, oh, you know, we're not new traders. We came from the Board of Trade. You know, we know what's going on. We, we could stand here. I go, listen to me. The only guys who stand next to me and in front of me is guys I've known since birth, or they've been around here for the last four years. And I said, you guys can't stand here. Go over there. That's Louis Borsellino. He was one of the biggest futures traders in the world and the king of the mighty S&P 500 stock index futures pit at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. So they didn't argue with me. They went, st stood on the other side of the pit. And literally a couple months later, the crash happened. The crash of 87. The law of gravity hit Wall Street today and financial markets around the world. The Dow dropped more than 500 points. From the opening bell, the market was in free fall. As stock prices plunged even more than they did on Black Tuesday of 1929. Everybody was trying to find a bottom. And I'm saying, this, is gotta be, this has to be the bottom. On October 19th, 1987, the American stock market suffered a massive collapse. Known as Black Monday, it was the biggest single-day decline in stock market history. And the S&P 500 futures pit was one of the epicenters of the crash. Most people panic when the stock market is tanking. But great traders like Louis Borsellino, they smell blood in the water. That Monday, I'm in Switzerland. I'm sitting in Piaget and I'm going to buy a watch for my wife because she wasn't happy that I was going with a bunch of guys to Europe. Smart move. And I'm looking outside and I can see the ticker tape on the building. It must have been the Swiss bank building across the street, UBS or whoever it was. And I see it says the Dow is down 500. And I said, that ticker tape's got to be broke. And, and the salesman said to me, he goes, oh no, sir, don't you know that you know, the market crashed? You know, I like turn white and I'm, I'm leaving. I got the watch on my wrist. The guy goes, where, where are you going? I go, I, I got to go. I got to go make a phone call. He goes, can, you know, can I have the watch back? I, I threw him my credit card. I said, I'll be back, <laughs> you know? So I get to the, I was staying at the Boulevard Hotel in Switzerland and my brother calls me. He goes, Lou, you got to come home. He goes, if you were here, you would have made $5 million. It's crazy. He goes, the markets are crazy. I made a phone call to to see if I could get a flight out, but the only way I could get back fast is I had to fly standby on the Concorde, one way, 1987, 15G. For those of you who don't know, a Concorde was a supersonic plane that went more than twice as fast as today's planes. If you were flying a Concorde in the 80s, you were a baller. The $15,000 he spent was well worth it because Lewis says he made $200,000 that day and another 400,000 the next day. 
Thursday morning is the famous trade. I'm long 500 and the thing's moving at a thousand at a crack. That's a, that's a half a million at a crack, you know? I'll never forget, it was Louis Hetrovitz. He was across the pit and he goes, what are you doing? I go, seller. He goes, I'll buy 500. I sell him 500 and then I scalp this, that. I take all my cards, I give them to my clerk. I go, go find, figure out what I made. So she comes back in about 10 minutes and she goes, if these prices are right, you're up 1.4 1, 1. million. I made like 1.4 million in like 30 seconds or whatever it was, right? And I walked out of the pit and I went and threw up. It was a good day for Lewis. As for those other two guys that tried to stand next to him in the pit a few months before. These two traders showed up and I think it was Peter Vogel and another guy. Those guys were Peter Vogel and Randy Jackson. And they were the undercover agents we heard about from Ray Pace and T-Bun in earlier episodes. But what we haven't heard is that before the agents were in the currency pits with Ray and T-Bun, they were stationed in the S&P 500 futures pit with Louis Borsellino. I saw him the first day when I told him they couldn't stand there, and then I saw him when they were in the paper. It came out after the crash that these guys lost about $500,000 in the crash. We know that the FBI made some missteps in planning this investigation. But being in the biggest stock futures pit in the world during the worst market crash in decades? That's not a mistake. It's just really, really bad luck. I'm Anjay Nagpal, and this is Brokers, Bagmen, and Moles. He used to tell me, I turned the market. I deserve everything. They don't want to listen to that. Then you violently tell them they're not standing where you're at. And he went to jail because they hijacked two million dollars worth of silver. Now, give me the guy's name, give me his address, and don't worry, I'll take care of this problem. For you. I get this subpoena or the FBI knocking at my door. They want me to come to a grand jury. I got to keep this a secret for 25 years. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I lost concept of money. It didn't matter. There wasn't a check I wouldn't pick up. There wasn't a thing I didn't buy. Um, you know, I, I met a girl one night who got her, her leather jacket stolen and she was crying. She goes, oh, my jacket, I spent $400 on that jacket. And she's crying. I took $400 out of my pocket. I go, here's the 400. Stop crying. <laughs> you know? 
All I knew about Lewis before making this podcast was that he was a big shot trader with a tough guy reputation. He went to the same grade school as Stretch, and his sons owned a bar with one of my friends. Biggest small town in the world. We conducted this interview during the pandemic in an empty office building in abandoned downtown Chicago. Lewis has a unique past, and he knows that, so he addressed it up front. As you know, uh, everybody uh, knows my father was involved in organized crime. In Chicago, Lewis's father, Anthony Borsellino, is pretty well known as an alleged hitman for the Chicago Mafia. It was a lifestyle that he was comfortable with because he had real strong constitution. To this day, I've never met uh, anybody with that kind of strong constitution. Not, not only physical, but mental. The mental constitution about what's right, what's wrong. Even though his, 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 his conception of what's right and wrong, it just, it, this is just shades of gray, right? And, and, it, and it wasn't uh, like, you know, he didn't care about his family. It was like, he was a family guy. I mean, he just, this is what he did. When we spent our summers in Lake Geneva, we spent our, as much as he can. And the way he provided for that was just a little different. It's strange to think a man could be a professional hitman and come home and be a dad, but that's what it was like in the Borsellino family. Obviously, it's a dysfunctional uh, family when you're looking at things like that, but not from the point of love or the way we looked at each other, right? I think people who grow up in Hollywood and their uncle is a famous movie star, that's just normal to them, right? So to us, my dad's friends were all the same sort of personality type, right? Lewis didn't know all of this as a kid. He was born on the far south side of Chicago. His family moved up to Cicero when he and his brother were little. And then eventually, they settled in a much nicer suburb called Lombard. That's where Stretch lived, too. My dad used to call us the gym shoe kids. I wanted you to be raised up as a gym shoe kid, a guy who lived in the suburbs, right, and wore gym shoes. And when it came time to go to college, you weren't saying, if you're going to college, you're going where you're going to college. And it was shortly after they moved that Lewis started to notice the wads of cash in his dad's pockets, the brand new cars in the driveway, the Blackhawk season tickets. By the fourth grade, the source of all of it was no longer a secret. He went to jail because they hijacked $2 million worth of silver. Can you imagine what that $2 million worth of silver is worth today? Lewis's father was gone for most of his childhood and his mom worked as a secretary to pay the bills. How did that shape me as a, a human being? I knew what was right from wrong. I knew I didn't want my dad's life. I knew I saw the pain that our family went through. I saw the prejudices that, that come from that. Uh, a family is a family, and everybody has to deal with different things. So, I, I think the question, I, you know, I, I'm rambling, but... His dad got out when Lewis was in high school, and he saw his son graduate college. But that was the last great moment they shared together. We ended up um, being murdered two days after I graduated college. It, it was, it was not, it was like your life changed overnight, right? My dad didn't come home. Two days later, they find him. He's dead. Lewis hadn't had time to process his father's death. 
let alone mourn, when something unexpected happened. You gotta go through a wake, you gotta go through a funeral, and, and then a week after the funeral, I get this subpoena or the FBI knocking at my door, they want me to come to a grand jury. And this was way before Lewis ever stepped onto the floor. So the FBI wasn't there to talk about the Merck. They were there to talk about his dad. I actually hired an attorney that was known to be an organized crime attorney. And the people, some people said, why are you doing this? I go, because I want them to know that I don't know anything. I went to the grand jury and he just told me to take the Fifth Amendment, which I did. And they showed me a bunch of pictures of people that I've known my whole life, right? Or known associates of my father. And I didn't know any of the answers. So I got out of the, out of the hearing room with the attorney and myself. I was on the uh, elevator. And then the uh, FBI guy says, you know, we can give you immunity. I go, why? I go, just leave me, to, you know, just leave me alone. My dad's dead. All I care about is me, my brother, and, and uh, my mother. That's it. So leave me alone. The FBI left him alone after that, at least for a while. But what they didn't understand is that Chicago guys don't want their sons following them into the outfit. They wanted their sons to go to school and to have legit careers. And that's what Lewis was planning to do. He'd finished his undergrad and was studying for the LSATs, but he got into a fight that resulted in him being convicted of felony battery, which meant that he couldn't practice law. I started driving a truck, and it sort of was like a poetic irony in my life, right? Because my dad, and uh, I used to say to him, I'll never, I'll never do this, right? And he never wanted me to do this, right? He always wanted me to be something else. I found myself relating to Lewis because my parents also came from nothing and I too lost my father at a young age. Like Lewis, I wanted to make my dad proud. When I became a successful trader at such a young age, man, it felt good. When you face the death of a parent so young, you want to squeeze every last drop out of the time you have. But that attitude, combined with lots of money, it can be dangerous. My father wasn't an alleged hitman, but he certainly was flawed. And at the end of the day, I'm not sure it matters. Dads are dads, and as kids, you accept them and worship them, even if it means compartmentalizing some of their behavior. I went straight into trading after college, but Lewis took a more circular route. I was playing handball, like most people play racquetball. I was actually playing handball at a, at a local gym, the Duncan YMCA, and there was a guy named Lou Matta there. Lou Matta worked at the Merck. And I started asking him about the futures. And he said, why don't you come down there? You, you know, you're going to like this place. This is such a classic Chicago story. First, you're talking to a guy at the gym, and the next thing you know, he's offering you a job. And as soon as Lewis actually got to the floor, he ran into another guy he knew. Maury Kravitz, who literally is a legend in many ways. At 47, Maury Kravitz has traded 10 times the gold owned by the United States government, more gold than anyone else in this country. When I first met Maury Kravitz, I told him I would call him a money master. And he said, rather you should call me the man who dances between raindrops without getting wet. 
Maury was a personal injury attorney when he first started trading at the Merck. Lewis's mom was his legal secretary, and Maury became a family friend of the Borsellinos. I've known Maury since I was eight years old. I remember a funny story. My, Maury had a problem with the CFTC, and it was another trader had made some trades in the Mexican peso debacle. It had parked a lot of money in Maury's account. The details of the Mexican peso debacle aren't all that important. But parking money in someone's account is illegal. Maury definitely would have known the guy did it, but he wouldn't have planned on getting caught. And Maury's telling, you know, complaining to my dad what happened. And my dad said to him, give me the guy's name, give me his address, and don't worry, I'll take care of this problem for you. And Maury looked at him and said, well, I don't really need that, Tony. <laughs> so I just remember looking at, it, uh, looking at my father and looking at Maury, and I don't think Maury ever realized what that meant. <laughs> Until my dad said, give me his name and address. If you didn't realize it, when a guy like Anthony Borsellino offers to take care of someone, he's offering something much more persuasive than a friendly chat. Maury, however, had other powerful friends who could take care of things with more legal methods. Maury's law partner was none other than Leo Malamed. I am going to move the financial center of gravity out of New York at least 10 feet. For most of the 50s, they ran the law firm and traded at the Merck part-time. Then, in 1957, they decided to give up their law practice and headed to the Merck full-time. You know, pre-19, I'm not sure, like, I want to say 75, it was illegal to trade gold in the U.S. And he went around when he was at the Merck and he started going to all the, all the clearing firms and saying, hey, if they ever trade gold, can I be your gold broker? Maury anticipated that the Merck would one day trade futures on gold. And when it did, he had solicited all the big banks and investment firms to use him as a broker. At one point, he handled 90% of the paper, or orders, that were coming into the pit. He was a one-man monopoly. There were no rules against this because nobody ever had that kind of power before. He made more money than he knew what to do with. As for Lewis, he was enamored with Maury's power. So I tapped him on the shoulder and he looks at me, he goes, you know, he had this really rough kind of voice. He was 5'5 five, five by 5'5 five, five too. And he said, hey kid, what are you doing here? I go, I go, I got a job as a runner. He goes, what about school? I go, well, you know, I was gonna go to law school. He goes, I don't think I can do that now. He goes, be back here in two weeks. You're gonna be my clerk. And that was the start of it. The Chicago exchanges turned blue-collar guys into millionaires practically overnight. But no matter who you were, everybody had to start out the exact same way, as a runner. I got a job as a runner, and I was making 32 bucks a week or something like that. Sound familiar? It's the same path as Tim, T-Bun, 
and pretty much everyone else took. To make it to the big leagues, you had to withstand a year or two of hard work and minimal pay as an assistant to a trader. Then you had to figure out a way to buy or lease a high-priced membership or seat on the exchange. It wasn't easy, but Lewis was up for the challenge. Trading is game day every day. I learned very fast how, how the markets function. Markets go up when there's more buyers than sellers, and markets go down when there's more sellers than buyers. And they have to re reach uh, equilibrium. He learned a few other things, too. I learned a lot, right? I learned that Maury's uh, uh, broker number was 139. And why did I have to know what his broker number was? Because when the market got fast and I would get a buy and a sell, I would take it, match it together, put a price down, put it in my pocket, endorse it to each other and write 139, which was technically illegal because Maury was supposed to do that, but. Even though it was illegal, it happened all the time. Because you learn pretty quick that if your broker wants you to do something, you do it. Even if it means bending the rules. From the beginning, Lewis had an intuitive feel for the floor. Unlike the FBI agents, he instantly understood the nuanced relationship between a local and a broker, and what it took to be successful. The guys that were the bigger traders, the order fillers wanted the bigger traders next to them because if I get a 100 lot or a 500 lot, I want a guy who's gonna take half that order down. What he's saying is that the more a local trades, AKA the bigger his bankroll, the closer he's gonna get to the big brokers because that allows them to fill their orders more easily. This might sound confusing, but think about it this way. If you're selling Girl Scout cookies and you have 100 boxes to sell, rather than going door to door selling one box to each house you visit, wouldn't you rather live next door to someone who will buy all 100 boxes? I don't want, you know, 100 guys taking one, right? Because that, uh, that's a risk of an outtrade, right? Less paperwork means less risk of an error. Lewis spent his first six months learning from the master, and then he got a shot to stand in the pit. Maury bought a seat for $250,000 and then leased it to Lewis until he could pay him back. The way the territory works is you stand there and if somebody tries to take your spot, then you just make sure they nicely know that they can't stand there and if they don't want to listen to that, then you violently tell them they're not standing where you're at. You can't just walk into a pit and stand by the biggest traders. You have to earn that privilege. We know FBI agents in the pits struggled to get next to big brokers and it ultimately hindered their investigation. Luckily for Lewis, he was a quick learner. I wasn't used to people yelling and swearing at you and saying they were going to beat me up. Like, you know, you're going to eat that out trade. I'm going to punch you in the face. I'm, and, you know, when he said that and got his finger there, I just, and I said, okay, who's going to punch you now? <laughs> right? And Maury told me, you know, you can't punch people on her. I go, I, they keep telling me they're going to punch me. You know? So I got the reputation for that. Right? I, I had the street, street knowledge edge. Maybe he picked it up from his father, 
or maybe he learned it from Maury, but wherever he got it, this edge served him well in the pit. What happened to me as a kid and what, what happened to my father was extraordinary. Most people don't go through that. So what I really learned early age is you just cope and go forward, right? And so, so little things, like I think that's exactly why I, I became a great trader. I'm, when everybody else was panicking, I didn't panic. I just, I just said, and said, okay, how are we gonna take advantage of what's going on? He had to do well enough to pay Maury back for the seat he was leasing, plus make a living. And as a first year broker, things were not looking great. It takes a good year for somebody to be in that pit, to be comfortable in their skin, to be able to buy and sell, right? You know, I wasn't doing well. I was debiting my account. I was getting eaten up alive without trades. We've already established that the challenge of being a broker is making too many mistakes while executing customer orders because those mistakes came out of your pocket. Lose mistakes in the volatile gold pit were costing him more than he was making filling orders. His back was against the wall when an entirely new opportunity came knocking. The S&P pit opened up and it just became the largest contract in the world. That put Chicago futures on the market, on, on the map. How does Chicago wrestle that away from the New York Merck? Leo Malamed, that's how. But before Lewis could move to the new S&P pit, he had to run it by Maury. And I said to Maury, I said, hey, if you don't want to go with me, but I'm going to go after all our customers and take them to the S&P pit. And he said, no, let's do it together. So then we went and we built a deck in the S&P pit. We took all our same gold customers. It was a good move. The huge pit held almost 500 traders, and the S&P futures became the go-to tool for large money managers to hedge their exposure to the overall stock market. And for Lewis, that meant a chance to help out some old friends and family. Brought my brother, then I brought my cousins, then I brought our friends. I'll bet you the, the first 25 guys that I brought, literally brought down to the Merck, I didn't take anything from them. I sponsored them, put them up, and if they went bad, it was on me. And guess what, those 25 guys, they all brought another guy, or two, or three. So there was a whole group, in fact, in the S&P pit, they used to call our little section Little Italy, <laughs> right? And it was all our friends, that our cousins, that we, you know, they came down to the Merck for us. And we all became, you know, we were all good friends. It was a big deal, and we're still friends to this day. Ray Pace and his wife were part of the crew, T-Bun too. At the Merck, these kids became kings, and Lewis was their leader. He developed a sixth sense for what was going on around him, so much so that he decided to be a local and to trade for his own account. And that's when he started to rake in the cash. It's, I used to call it being king of your environment, right? Like, that was one of the things that I was very good at. I, I could stand in that pit, I could tell you who was long, who was short, and who had big orders to fill. And, and it's why when I was in the pit, I was such a big trader. But no matter how big Lewis got, he wasn't letting any trade he thought was his get away from him. A lot of those order fillers that had to sell, they couldn't get to me, so they would just sell them to the guys next to him, right? 
And I would get angry because if I saw it, I used to tell them, hey, I turned the market. I deserve everything. And that's the way it was down there. Even when you were on top, you had to defend your territory because there was always someone who wanted what you had. I remember the first time I made $5,000 in a day and I thought, I got to keep this a secret for 25 years. It was capitalism at its purest. Luckily for Lewis, the exchange floors in Chicago would fly under the radar and $5,000 would eventually feel like a rounding error. Louis Borsellino was becoming a massive success story, and word was getting around. I'm at a wedding, a friend of my dad forever, you know, says, hey, the old man wants to meet you. I go, what old man? He goes, Joey Iupa. I go, okay. So I go over there, he's an old, old Italian guy, he's got to be in his 80s, you know, five foot five. And he goes, hey kid, I've heard a lot of good things about you. He goes, and he, he volunteered. You know, what happened to your dad was a mistake. The man Lewis is talking about here is none other than Joey Doves Ayupa, the leader of the Chicago outfit. Lewis's dad was actually killed by fellow mobsters because they thought he might have been stealing from the organization. And now, just a few short years later, the head of the mafia was telling him that his dad's murder was an accident. I don't know if he meant that literally, or just that it was tragic that it had to happen, but either way, that must have been heavy for Lewis. What did it matter? It didn't matter. My dad was dead still, right? It didn't, it didn't matter if it was a mistake or not. But, you know, I was always respectful and so on. And so then he asked me, he never had kids, so he had a couple, he had a couple uh, uh, nephews and he said that his nephew wanted to come down to the Merck. And his name was Joey Aupa. So I said, yeah, I could help him. You know, I'll try to help him and get him through the, show him the ropes, how to get there and so on and so forth. I, you know, he goes, well, I, I appreciate it. So I meet his nephew, nice kid. We're still friends to this day. And he ended up coming to the Merck, become a clerk, ended up going to the lumber pit and ended up trading lumber. Just as Maury had to show Lewis the ropes, Lewis had to teach the new guys the way of the floor. He always had a lot of visitors. His brother and him had like a ticket tron, like they used to sell tickets, right? So he'd be getting paged like three times a week. And I'd be hearing, Joey Aupa, visitor, Joey Aupa, visitor. Well, no, everybody knew that Joey Aupa, the name, was you know, tied to the, to the Chicago mob, right? So I walk over to the pit and I see Joey, I go, hey, Joe. You know, I took a little heat, you know, sponsoring and getting into the work. I go, but you, you keep getting paged like five times a day. Do me a favor. See this guy right here? Sid Rabin? I go, yeah, page him when it's for you. <laughs> and we were both laughing. But I mean, look, he was a legit kid, right? I was legit. But it was still a problem of, you know, a perspective, right? What a strange existence. One day, CNBC or CNN call you to hear your thoughts on the financial markets. And on other days, the calls were totally different. I get calls from guys I know that were bookies, and they would ask me about traders. Or, hey, you know this guy? Yeah. Well, what's up? He goes, well, you know, he put a bet in for 40000 I go, yeah, okay. He goes, can he pay? I go, I'm not answering that question. Because if he doesn't pay you, you're going to ask me for the money. A bookie was asking Lewis to vouch for someone. But Lewis understood that he'd be on the hook if something went wrong. 
So he was smart not to answer the question. I had no bad habits as far as drugs, alcohol, partying. You know, I think that the saying used to be, show me somebody, somebody who gets hooked on cocaine was God's way of telling you, you make too much money. Lewis kept his behavior pretty clean off the floor. And as he found out later, that was a very wise move. The first five years that I worked at the Merck, the Organized Crime Strike Force and the IRS pulled all my trading records for no reason. But the reason was, I must be laundering money for the mob, right? There were always rumors that a goal of this investigation was to bust the outfit trying to launder money on the floor. But I never had a reason to believe them until now. Literally, the defense attorney told me that I was the number one target when they came down to the Merck. Louis Borsellino's assertion that the FBI was targeting him because of his ties to organized crime and potential laundering of money for the mafia, this was new information. I wondered where he heard it. It was a couple years later, after the, the investigation, I sat down and the guy go, who was the defense attorney, he goes, I always wanted to meet you. I go, why is that? He goes, well, he goes, I sat in on probably 10 or 12 302s where the FBI was actually uh, talking to my clients about, you know, they were asking them questions about what's going on. And he goes, within minutes, the question always came up, do you know Louis Borsellino and you know Joey Borsellino? And they would say, yes. Have you ever traded with them? Yes. Have you ever done a prearranged trade with them? They'd say, no. They go, well, why not? And he goes, well, because they're good traders and, you know, we never had an opportunity and we don't know anything about them doing prearranged trading. At this point, I was questioning everything I've learned so far. I was the number one guy that they were going to stand by and they were going to investigate me. And the Merck actually put, put a compliance officer who stood behind me when I was following orders. Which means that the Merck was already keeping an eye on Lewis. You know, I knew it, right, at the end of the day. And thank God I was good at what I was doing and I didn't trust people. So if I made a mistake, I ate it myself. I didn't have, ask anybody to do that, right? Louis Borsellino was never charged with a crime. Not for ripping off customers, either as a broker or a bagman, and not for laundering money for the mafia. But what about his little brother Joey, a huge trader in his own right? For that, the FBI used their favorite little trick. They took him out to lunch and said that they have a, they got a bunch of tax losses. And if you can... You know, if you make a lot of money, give it to me. I'll give it back to you in cash. I won't have to pay taxes on it, and so on. And my brother just looked at him and said, yeah, well, that doesn't sound uh, like that's legal. Like Ray and T-Bun, Joey Borsellino says he didn't take the bait. But the FBI still watched the Borsellinos like hawks, and it was partly due to some very suspicious behavior. In the 302s, they go, we know Louis Borsellino's in the Mafia and Joey because when we see him come into the currency pits, like uh, Jimmy and guys that we helped that were in the different pits, 
they would hug and kiss us, you know, like this is where we were raised, like, you know, we can hug and kiss each other, right? And until COVID, we were still doing that, right? But at the end of the day, they said, well, you know, they, everyone kisses Lewis and Joey, so that's sort of a sign of, you know, respect to that they're in the mafia. I'm not a judge, but I don't think hugging and kissing your friends is probable cause for a criminal investigation. How about we were just friends, you know? I, I you know, I brought guys on that I knew my whole life, you know, they'd call me up and say, hey, we could come down. You know, you help us out and so on. Lewis confirmed my suspicion that the government was looking for something other than trading violations. So I wondered, what could have possibly led the FBI's organized crime squad to the exchanges other than lots of last names that end in vowels? The guides told me that that's what happened, that they were wiretapping bookies. A lot of their biggest players were commodity traders. And same thing with the drug, drug dealers. What would happen on those wiretaps, what they would hear, saying, hey, how are you going to pay for this? Don't worry about it. I'll just steal it off the deck. I'll just steal it off the deck. Steal it off the deck. As in, steal it from a pile of customer orders. You hear that enough times, they want to know what stealing off the deck means, right? So that's how they ended up putting traders in the pit. I learned that, you know, years later when I was talking to the defense attorney. And that, says Louis Borsellino, was the genesis for this investigation. While I haven't been able to confirm that story, it seems like the most plausible scenario so far. To recap, in episode two, T-Bun thought that the FBI started this investigation because a lot of traders were making tons of money. But again, the FBI does not investigate people just because they're rich. In episode three, Ray mentioned there were rumors that brokerage firm ABS Partners was under suspicion for stealing clients by giving them kickbacks, but that was never confirmed. In episode four, reporter Bill Crawford and Leo's former employee Vinnie Provenzano thought that the FBI was going after exchange leaders like Leo Malamed and Jack Sandner, but they weren't able to get that far. Then, in episode five, we learned the most accepted theory about the genesis of this investigation, that food giant ADM, or Archer Daniels Midland, and their CEO, Dwayne Andreas, complained to the FBI they were getting ripped off at the Chicago exchanges. This explanation doesn't add up because ADM didn't trade in three of the four pits the FBI went to. Also, ADM was a bit crooked itself, so why would they want the feds anywhere near them? And just now, Lewis says the real reason the government started this investigation is that while wiretapping bookies, they'd heard traders say they can steal from their customers to cover their gambling losses. On top of that, he told us he was the number one target of this investigation because they thought he was laundering money for the mafia. But wait, there's more. He also told us FBI agents Peter Vogel and Randy Jackson tried to stand next to him in the S&P pit in 1987. That was months before they went into the much smaller pits next to smaller traders 
like T-Bun and Ray Pace. The narrative that the FBI started at the bottom and worked its way up? It's not true. They went for the big fish, the Borsalinos, right away. This story is pretty complex. And the more people we talked to, the more twisted it got. The FBI were the only ones who could really set the record straight. But we'd reached out to them several times with no response. So I asked our senior producer, Danielle, if we really even needed the agents. We gotta get one. Yeah, we gotta get one. Gotta get one, it just blows the lid off this thing. Yeah, if we need an FBI agent, if we need one of those. The smartest decision I made while making this podcast was to surround myself with professionals like Danielle. Because eventually we heard back and next week we'll talk to not one, but two of the agents who jumped headfirst into the surprisingly dangerous assignment. They were told, the guys in the corn pit, he's an FBI agent. They were gonna uh, take Rick up to one of their cabins in Wisconsin. With this much noise and with this much chaos, how can we possibly make, make criminal cases in here? Why are you messing with us? We're small potatoes. Get the guys at the Board of Trade and the Merc. Those are the real crooks. Before you go, if you or someone you know might have a hot tip or just a funny story related to our show, we have a hotline for you. Call us at 646-820-1452. That's 646-820-1452. And please follow us on social media. Our handle is at Entropy Media Co. That's at Entropy Media Co. Where we'll be posting additional information about the case and awesome behind the scenes action. This has been a production of Entropy Media in association with Stretch Productions. This is Entropy's very first show, so if you've enjoyed it, please follow wherever you listen to podcasts and rate us there too. Every follow, rating, or even a personal recommendation to a friend or family member really helps. I'm your host, Anjay Nagpal. Our showrunner and senior producer is Danielle Elliott. Our producer is Jen Swan. Our executive producers are Tim Hendricks, Kevin Stretch Huff, and Dennis Stratton. Original music, sound design, and editing by Gerard Bauer. Music clearances by Deborah Manis Gardner from DMG Clearances. Production legal by Bruns, Brennan, and Barry. Legal clearance, fair use by Rachel Strom at Davis Wright Tremaine. Fact checking by Delilah Friedler. Show art by Rebecca Hendon. And from Entropy Media, our in house executive producer is Josh Fielstad. Our head of operations is Nuna Ebo. Our project manager is Sebastian Perry. Our associate producer is Heidi Rudvotes. Our development coordinator is Simona Kessler. And I want to send a very special thanks to Lori Morse and David Greasing. <laughs>